everybody and welcome back to a chat about history with me Tom. So this is going to be our third episode now and we've moved on from looking at the Thucydides trap uh, to looking at something quite a bit darker today. Um, we're going to be looking at the My Lai massacre in March 1968 on March the 16th. So this massacre something that I think everyone should be aware of. I don't think it's covered in as much depth as other atrocities that have occurred in recent history. So I thought it was something that should be brought brought to light and I thought I should take this opportunity to cast some light on that through this podcast. So it was a massacre that was committed by the Americans in the Vietnam War, which lasted from 65 to 73 in the 20th century and I wanted to do something a little bit different because when I was doing my research everything seemed to be from the perspective of Lieutenant Lieutenant Kelly on the ground or from the perspective of Hugh Thompson in his helicopter and it was quite hard to find anything that actually cast light on the massacre from the perspective of the people who it was committed against, and that was the Vietnamese villagers in Mala. So I thought I'd take our story from Ban Thong Kong, who's now 63. Uh, so Kong woke up at early in the morning, and he was out playing in his village. His father was out of the village. It was a Saturday morning. He'd probably gone off to market along with most of the other men, so there were pretty much none left in the village. Kong was playing with his siblings outside his house when he hears gunfire, and he doesn't know what the gunfire is. It's quite normal for hearing some gunfire, because he is living in a war zone. He thought it might be the Viet Cong killing some animals nearby to eat, but he didn't think much of it until he saw people around him dying and the gunfire getting louder. As these people around him are dying and he, he hears the gunfire and he catches glimpses of soldiers running into the village, American soldiers running into the village, crouching undercover, shooting people. So Kong immediately, as a young child, flees and his mum grabs him and his siblings and takes them into the family hut where he hides with his mother and the four siblings, cowering in the corner of this hut as they hear gunfire, screams of women and children in the village elsewhere, elderly people being shot and killed by the Americans. As Kong is hiding in the dugout, he's cowering in the corner, right in the corner. His mum and his siblings are closer to the door than him. They hear footsteps of an American soldier approaching. The soldier looks in, sees Kong and his family before shooting into the hut and throwing in a grenade. Kong survived, but his four siblings and his mother did not. And Kong still has trouble sleeping today as he's haunted by the image of his, at the time, two-year-old sister who was cut in half by the grenade blast. 
Kong was left in the hut as the Americans eventually stopped killing. But Kong was left in the hut surrounded by his dead family, covered in blood for eight hours until his father eventually came back and found him. This story is not unique and there are lots of other villagers who survived and who died with stories that match, such as Fanti Thuan, who was forced by the Americans into an irrigation ditch. And luckily she survived, but she was forced into this irrigation ditch surrounded by over 170 other people lying on top of each other as Lieutenant Kelly and one of the privates, Miglo, opened fire into the ditch, killing as many people as they could inside it, which amounted to over 170 people. Doe Bar was also heard into this ditch, along with his mother and his two siblings, who all died apart from him, and he survived only thanks to the pilot Hugh Thompson and Larry Coburn, who landed their helicopter as they were so confused and appalled by what they eventually realised was the Americans committing cold-hearted murder. And Thompson says all he could think about were the images he'd seen of the Second World War and the Nazis killing innocent people. So Thompson and Coburn landed and managed to save Dobar and rescue him. But this was not the case for the majority, as up to 500 unarmed Vietnamese villagers were killed in that one day. And many of them were raped or mutilated before they were killed as well. So we've examined the actual events of the atrocity from the perspective of the Vietnamese victims. Uh, and I think now a good question to ask is how how the Americans could commit such an atrocity. People that had loving families at home and when they first arrived in Vietnam were handing out candy and sweets to all the children that they were meeting in Vietnam. How this shift occurred where they could kill and commit such a massive atrocity. And also how they can then how they could personally justify this to themselves. And this isn't a justification for what they did at all. It's just seeking to understand the psychological shift that occurred in their thinking, where they shifted from perceiving the Viet Cong as the enemy to the all of the Vietnamese. So I think this has to go up the, the command chain initially as we look at what orders they were given. So their captain, Medina, who was in charge of the operation, told the troops, to quote, there are no civilians, showing how he had merged both civilians and the Viet Cong into one enemy and was perceiving the whole of the Vietnamese population at that time as the enemy. And then that order was carried out by Charlie Company and led by Lieutenant Kelly, where the massacre uh, 500 unarmed Vietnamese villagers took place. So how did this complete moral erosion of the principles many of us hold dear now and held dear back in the 
the 20th century at the time of the Vietnam, Vietnam War of not killing civilians. How was that so eroded during the course of their tour in Vietnam? So it's, the Harbour is an isolated moral community where between them they slowly committed more atrocities as they were racked by the pain of losing some of their own troops to the Viet Cong. And this isolated moral community slowly justified the killing of prisoners who were the enemy, prisoners who weren't the enemy, and then from there it's not much further to go to kill civilians. And the sense of comradeship that was present within this isolated community, which is Charlie Company, was also really influential, as they didn't want to let each other down. So if one of them took the decision to fire that first shot on the 16th of March in 1968 at My they felt an obligation to join their comrades in the massacre. And that is perhaps why it was someone from outside of Charlie Company, in Hugh Thompson, who was only able to come at the situation from a different perspective and stop the atrocities occurring. As well as people within the division did, at times, refuse to help, such as when Callie was shooting the soldiers in the ditch. He asked for volunteers and no one no one came to help him until he said, Meadlo, you come and help me, at which point Meadlo did. And other soldiers said if they'd been asked specifically, they don't know whether they'd have been able to say no. But something inside them didn't want to join Callie, as none of them went to help him initially. So whilst the sense of comradeship was present, and to some extent in their heads justified what they were doing, it can't fully explain why the, why the atrocity took place. In fact, we've got to also look at the context of the warfare they were fighting. So they were fighting a guerrilla warfare, really, in the terms of the Viet Cong they were facing. They were fighting a guerrilla war, and the Americans were being picked off. And this was obviously infuriating and whistling down Charlie Company to the extent that they wanted an enemy they could fight on a battlefield. And that's what they were given at Milai by their generals. And the generals said, this, this is the enemy. They are here. Everyone there is Viet Cong. You should go in and leave no survivors. And that is what the troops did. And they managed to justify in their heads, psychologically, that it was similar killing civilians as killing Viet Cong. And the place of discipline alongside comradeship is also essential to consider. As when you look at it, there is simultaneously absolute discipline present in that the troops obeyed orders to the word and didn't leave anyone surviving, but also an absolute absence of discipline where one would say now and at the time that from an objective perspective that the troops should, if they followed the military codes to the letter of the law, disobeyed these illegal orders they were given. So was discipline absent or was it present? That's just an interesting question to consider in how the American soldiers managed to justify killing the Vietnamese villagers on that day. Moving on from how, the question of how this could happen, I think something that's interesting to pick up on in terms of the aftermath of the event is this idea of justice and what justice was achieved and for who was justice achieved. As I think it would pretty 
the universally agreed that justice wasn't achieved. But actually, what kind of justice was being sought is also an interesting topic to consider. So Lieutenant Kelly, who led these killings on the ground, was charged for 22 killings, which were only the ones that he personally committed. And obviously, if he was involved in shooting the villagers in the ditch, along with one other companion, and 170 of them died, then naturally, the amount of people he personally would be responsible for killing would be much greater than 22 already. And Kelly was the only one sentenced by the court, as others were acquitted or never even tried. And his sentence was reduced initially. He initially sentenced life, which was then reduced to 20 years, then 10. And then he was paroled by Nixon after just over three years in prison. And to some extent, Kelly was a scapegoat. And that is why Nixon eventually paroled him. Because none of the generals above Kelly were charged at all in any sense and sentenced by a court. But that doesn't excuse what Kelly did. So the American public were very vocal in supporting Kelly and campaigning for his release as he they believed he was a scapegoat. And whilst that is true to some extent that he was scapegoated by the military, that doesn't excuse what he did. And really a wider set of court proceedings should have taken place rather than this industrial scale cover up which was in every level of the military, from the privates up to the generals, to try and avoid the fact that the American military had committed such an atrocity. But I think what we really need to consider here is how would putting Cali in prison or putting the generals in prison actually help the Vietnamese? And that's not to say that Cali and Captain Medina and those who helped the cover-up don't deserve to go to prison, it's just to say, how does that, what justice was really served for the Vietnamese victims? Three million people, Vietnamese people, died in the war. And those who survived this massacre in particular, or who lost family in it, say they have no support at all. And those who aren't classed as veterans, they didn't fight in the war, but were obviously heavily impacted by it, especially in the case of the victims of My Lai don't qualify for certain government benefits of being a veteran and have been left without any means of making money, haunted by the past of the war. And really, these are the people that need some sense of justice and people who need the help and assistance, rather than punishing, focusing on punishing the American generals, which again is an important part of a justice system, but actually helping the victims would surely be more beneficial than punishing those generals. And finally, the main excuse given for the, for the generals was that they were following orders. But just an interesting comparative element for me was when you compare it to the Nuremberg trials or the trials of Eichmann in 1961, which was closer to, chronologically closer to the Milai trials in the late 20th century after the Milai incident where in the Nuremberg trials and in Eichmann's trial, the excuse of saying they were following orders and the banality of evil didn't hold up. And Eichmann was killed uh, after his trial, whereas when it was in the context of American soldiers, this excuse was permitted. And it's just in interesting to consider the relativity of justice and how justice is really carried out 
by American courts or just generally carried out and how it's focused on America rather than the victims in Vietnam and also how inconsistent it is with previous American justice sought after other atrocities in World War II which were admittedly of a greater magnitude but the cold-hearted killing of innocent people was clearly present both in World War II and at Milo. So finally just to build on that wider context I was providing there with the World War II comparison. I think it's interesting to look at the context of the time and how initially this whole massacre was put down to red propaganda as it was reported by the Soviet press and the Viet Cong and in the Cold War context of imperial powers in 20th century America put this down to to quote red propaganda before eventually admitting that an atrocity did take place at Milai, but only after blatant photos were shown. And interestingly with the photos, there were sets of black and white photos taken for military purposes to show the military in a good light. And the photographer, Ron Hutherley, took simultaneously colour shots showing what actually was the case. And eventually those colour shots were released and obviously a picture says a thousand words and showed the trail of bodies following the American troops through Milai. So after this, the cover-up of Milai had been to some extent unmasked by the press and American soldiers who had personally tried to shed light on what happened and get the real story out there, such as Hugh Thompson, who interestingly was sent on five extremely dangerous missions in his helicopter after he tried to report the MI issue and was shot down five times in his last one breaking his back in the last crash, which I think he perceives as the military trying to get rid of him. But that is obviously speculation. But after this cover-up eventually came through, and it was exposed that the Milan massacre had taken place and it was worse than pretty much anybody had originally realised. It immediately highlighted the contradiction. It was also present during the civil rights movement in America at the same time of the US claiming to be a force for good globally whilst actually committing atrocities such as Milai or having unjust and unfair race laws in its own country. This inherent contradiction undermined the US position, saying they were this global police power and force for good, and it justified them, their power through their, their military power justified their moral authority as a force for good around the world against the Soviet threat. And obviously Milai highlighted this contradiction when they committed such atrocities, and how could this be a force for good globally? And finally, the, the distance that has now been taken from the massacre by the United States. And whilst to some extent it is recognised in the United States, it isn't widely taught in, in the US or more generally in European context. And the distance from the massacre has been 
reinforced by this by the actual blame and who who takes blame for this massacre because the soldiers blame the generals for giving the orders the generals blame the politicians putting them in an impossible situation where they had to give orders like this as their war effort wasn't being properly considered back home and the politicians never left america or even got close to these vietnamese villages so they can justify that they are not at fault either and ultimately the responsibility for my Lai has never really rested on anyone's shoulders in particular and has just been shifted from one to the other and the military especially after all the trials which never really resulted in any convictions apart from the brief stint lieutenant kelly did in prison means the military have evaded blame also so overall i think putting a vietnamese perspective on this has hopefully cast a different light on it to the usual one of the american perspective we've considered briefly how the shift took place and the moral erosion within Charlie Company, how they could justify committing such an atrocity. The sense of justice and actually who justice was for and whether justice was achieved in the incident. And then the image and context surrounding My Lai and how it contradicted the American sense of imperialism and their force as a global police power. So that's quite a dark episode there. And hopefully the next one will be a little bit lighter. Uh, and if you enjoyed this, please check out my earlier episodes on the Thucydides Trap, which again aren't as dark as this one. But goodbye, I hope you enjoyed as much as you can on such a sensitive topic. And I hope you have a good day.